Each week, we tell you stories that somehow, for whatever reason, have just not been widely covered in the media. Ones that make you say, what? How did I miss that? I have a story that proves that not everything is that easy to notice. For 24 years, the people in an Austrian town somehow completely missed this one. This is the story of the girl in the basement. Wow, you stole my thunder because I always ask that and I mention that later in my story. Of course. But I'm going to start out by saying we are back. And I don't just mean back from vacation. I mean, I'm back. Back in my lane with a juicy conspiracy, which also happens to be a decades-long cold case. This week, I'm going to tell you all about the mysterious hijacking case of D.B. Cooper. From time to time, during the How Did We Miss That podcast, we may talk about details of crimes that some may find triggering or disturbing. Listener discretion is highly advised. Hello and welcome back to an all new episode of How Did We Miss That? I'm Christine. And I'm John. Welcome back. Yeah. It's good to be back, right? It is. I missed it last week, but we were on vacation. I think everybody deserves a vacation. So, yeah. This uh, vacation ignited my creative juices. And in fact, I found this case I'm going to tell you about on vacation. Well, there you go. Yeah, just what I needed. So it was fruitful. Yes, indeed. All right. Well, I've got a really juicy story for you this week. It's one that I find both horrifying and also very interesting because so many people didn't realize this was going on Mm. literally right under their noses. Hmm. So we're going to go through that today. Well, conversely, I feel like my story, everyone knew was going on except for me. Oh, <laughs> I guess I'm stupid or I don't know, but I definitely missed it. So we have a, you know, two different sides of the spectrum here. All right. All right. Take it away. Well, my sources for this story are a post from the Real Stories channel on Facebook from March 8th, an article from the Daily Beast by Barbie Nado from March of 2017, and an article from allthatisinteresting.com by Katie Serena from February of 2018. I like all that is interesting.com. I just want to spend some time on there. That seems it's like all things that are interesting. Covers a lot of stuff. Yeah. It's a pretty How wide How do you narrow it down? Pretty wide range. <laughs> yes. What if it's not interesting? Then it wouldn't Isn't be on that there. subjective? There's probably a, a website right. for non interesting things. Oh. Everything that's not interesting covers the rest of the world. You have two things interesting and not. Okay. Which now that pa- we are, which page way off would topic. you be on? That's the question. Oh, I don't know. That's a good question. (laughs) I know which one I'd be on. Okay, I'll shut up. (laughs) Well, our story begins in 1984 in Austria, so that's probably how we missed that one. The town of, okay, Amstetten? I think I said it right. Bless you. Thank you. Amstetten. It's Stetten. Amstetten. Yes. Hmm. It's like near Vienna, kind of on the outskirts of it, maybe a suburb of Vienna. I don't know. I just know it's near Vienna. Okay. Good enough for me. Anyway, this little town is shocked to find that 18-year-old Elizabeth Fritzel 
has gone missing. Fritzel sounds delicious. Reminds <laughs> me of what's the stuff we like at the uh, Von Trapp? Spatzel, yes. I always get that mixed up with schnitzel, which is not spatzel. No. Or Fritzel. Right. Anyway, <laughs> we are really off topic this week. It's okay. We're, we're just coming back. We're rusty. All right. Well, anyway, like I said, Elizabeth has gone missing, and all that she left was a short note telling her family that she left to join a cult, not to look for her, and she was fine. That would totally work, right? Like, bye, gonna join a cult. Don't look for me, bye. Yeah, bye. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's a bit weird starting there, but we'll get into why that worked in a little while. Okay. Well, it turns out that Elizabeth did not run away to join a cult. I know, big shocker. Yeah. Yeah, shocked. (laughs) She had been kidnapped and held captive by her own father, Yosef. So we're going to kind of start the story a little weird. Like, not like I normally start my stories. I'm actually going to start at the end this time. Oh. Right? Wow, we're really uh, taking a new direction here. Yeah, so it's a little weird. you got to stay with me. Okay. Okay? Staying with you. Stay with me. I'll try not to interrupt because that will derail you. Yes. Yes. All right. So, 24 years later, 24 years after she disappeared. Okay. On April 19th, 2008, a 19-year-old woman named Kirsten is brought into a hospital emergency room. She is suffering from kidney and lung failure and has passed out. The doctors are running all kinds of tests trying to figure out what is wrong with her, but they just can't seem to come up with answers that make any sense at all. So they decide to check her medical charts and see if maybe there's something in her history that could help um, kind of give them a little bit more information. Maybe what's going on. Maybe she's had something in the past that's being exacerbated. Who knows? Mm-hmm. So sure enough, after searching the databases, they find the girl does not legally exist in the system. <laughs> there are no records of, of her existing anywhere. She doesn't even have a social security number. Well, whatever their equivalent is in Austria. I don't know what it is. Yeah. Here it's social security number. Yeah. And number. Whatever number the government assigns to you. Yes. Anyway, yes. she doesn't even have one. Gotcha. So they decide that their best bet is to ask the man who brought her in to see if he has any information about her. Besides telling the doctors that he is her grandfather, he seems to be pretty uncooperative. He's acting aggressive. He's giving short answers when he wouldn't even give an answer at all. He says he just wants them to treat her so that she can get home as soon as possible. So, it's a little confusing, right? Yes. The doctors are confused, just like we are. Yeah. Wondering, wouldn't you want to give them information to help your loved one? Yeah. I mean, I mean I, we, we've heard that a couple times on this show and other times. Like, why wouldn't you want to give this information right. or help and people just don't? Yeah. So, I don't know, it's weird. already their little radar is going up and because of his strange behavior they make a really fabulous decision and they call the police well good for them i know don't hear about that too often investigators arrive and begin questioning the man but quickly realize who they are talking to why this is yosef fritzel father of that missing girl oh i imagine them saying in their awesome austrian accent yeah yeah yosef fritzel that's Um, is that austrian i don't know i don't know anyway Yosef begins to tell the story that Kirsten is actually the daughter of Elizabeth. Mm. That she was dropped on the doorstep with a note in Elizabeth's handwriting asking him to take care of her daughter because she is very sick. Of course, investigators are like completely blown away by this information. They've been searching for this girl for 24 years. Mm -hmm. Suddenly she just shows up and puts her kid on the doorstep. Yeah. Doesn't make any sense. 
They know that they need to find her right away because she's the only one who can give the doctors the information that they need to treat Kirsten, who has now at this time fallen into a coma. Mm. She's so sick. Yeah. So two days later, without any more information or leads as to where Elizabeth might be, the doctors and police put out a public plea for any information that could help them find her mother. It wasn't until five days later that they finally get a break. But I guarantee it's not what you're thinking. Are you ready? I'm ready. Elizabeth turns up at the hospital with the grandfather in tow. Mm. He tells doctors that he has found her and that she would like to see her daughter. Around 40 years of age and noticeably frightened, Elizabeth is really not giving any more information to the doctors, but this isn't what is concerning to them now. Mm -hmm. Hospital staff are shocked at Elizabeth's appearance. Just like her daughter, her skin is very pale and thin. They said it was almost translucent, like you could see through it. It was so thin. Even though she's only 42, she looks more like 50 or 60. And she looks completely malnourished. She looks sick. Yeah. So this, along with the fact that she refuses to give any information about where she's been for 24 years, begins to worry the doctors. Yeah. So... I immediately thought that this Kirsten person was going to be Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of why I was like. But it's not. But it's not. It's not. It's, it's Kirsten. Kirsten. <laughs> All right. Well, like I said, they're worried about it. And again, in a fabulous move by these doctors, they call the police. Good job, doctors. I know. Man, Austria's Austria got it together. Got it going on. So police arrive and take the two down to the station so they can question them. But they could never have prepared themselves for what they were about to hear. After five hours of police questioning her and telling her that she, she was about to be arrested for unlawful imprisonment, Elizabeth finally tells her story. Mm. She said she had not joined a cult at all, but had been imprisoned in a basement since 1984. She explains that Kirsten is sick because she has lived her entire life, 19 years, in the basement. Yikes. In I the spent, basement. I spent 19 minutes in our basement and I feel translucent and sick. Yeah. I can't imagine. Years. Wow. Also in the basement were two other children, both under 18. Are you wondering where these children came from? Um, or are you yeah, making that face no, because am. you know what I'm going to say next? I mean, I kind of know. Yeah. I know how this show goes. Yeah. All right. So content warning for anybody who is yes, trigger warning. little squeamish around... I guess, children in any way. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Content warning. Yes. All right. Well, these children were the product of incest between Yosef and his daughter. Okay, wait a minute. Yeah. The content warning was for children. I mean, I I get triggered by children with their yelling or vomit or whatever. Maybe the trigger warning should have been for incest. Hello? Or um, molestation? Yeah, right. I don't know. Okay. That's the content word. I said anything having to do with children. Okay. I, Poopy diapers? It was, a blanket, it was a blanket content warning. Got you. Okay. All right. I got it. All right. Yosef had raped her more than 3,000 times. Oh, my God. And fathered seven Whoa. children. Now, that I wasn't expecting. Yeah. Now, here's, this is, if the story's not strange enough, it's going to get stranger right now. Only three of the children were raised in the basement with Elizabeth. Any guesses what he did with the other three? Killed them and ate them? Oh, God, no. <laughs> he brought them upstairs to be raised by his wife. Oh, what? Yes. 
the shocking twist. I really need to get that sound effect. She I'm has, blown away right now. She claims she has no idea. She had no idea what was going on. Oh my god. I'm sorry. If you showed up three separate times with babies on my doorstep, yeah, I would kind of start to go, "What the heck? What is going on here?" Well, you know, to kind of tie this into the whole Kirsten thing, this sounds very Sandy Cohen like, who just shows up with kids. Says, hey, by the way, we have a kid. He's going to move in with us. Right, but three separate times, babies on yeah. your doorstep? After the first one, I might be a little red it's flaggy. A bit mm-hmm. weird. Yeah. Okay. Like, okay. Do you know, did he like tell a story, a tale of I found this baby and so some I of my, this baby? Like, I, <laughs> I didn't put this in my story because some of my sources said it and some of my, for, my sources didn't. Yeah. And I couldn't verify. So I didn't mm-hmm. add that. But um, one of my sources said that he told the mother like wrote a, le- a letter i guess from mm-hmm. elizabeth saying yeah. this is my child please take care of her oh okay i mean that would make more sense yes. than just okay free baby yeah. you know <laughs> um so I, I like to think that's the case although if i were a mother that my daughter's been gone for so long and suddenly she's dropping off babies mm-hmm. i would be frantically looking for her because clearly she's still alive although she did say she was going to run off and join a cult and having a bunch of babies is kind of a culty thing, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I guess. I'm My theory is, and maybe you'll get into this, maybe I'm jumping the gun a little bit, is that the wife was just as brainwashed as the daughter and was just like, okay, whatever. Like, didn't, didn't ask any questions. Kind of. We'll you get know. to that. Okay. All right. So Elizabeth actually gave birth to all seven children by herself in the basement. Ugh. And she cut the umbilical cords with a pair of scissors. Well, that's normal. One child, so she actually had twins at one point. Mm-hmm. So technically, she birthed eight children. Right. But one child was incinerated because oh. it died from respiratory problems at birth. So during the trial, Yosef actually confessed that he feels like he probably could have helped the baby. Mm-hmm. But he didn't know what to do, and so he just killed it. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean... Shocked that she and seven children could live under the same house for 24 years. The police asked her for details of her daily routine. She told them that she kept a diary written in tiny letters on the receipts that Yosef left in the bags of groceries he brought her. She taught her kids how to read and made her dungeon as cheerful as possible by drawing flowers and rainbows on the walls. They were allowed a television and some cassette tapes, but... When the upstairs family, I mean, that's all I can think to call them. Yeah. Because real family doesn't sound right. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't, I mean, anyway. When they would go on vacation, the basement family <laughs> would be left alone for weeks at a time with very little food. And they couldn't even go upstairs? No. Wow, that's not very nice. There was no heat or water in the basement. When he was angry... They could sometimes go days with no electricity or food. So this isn't some glamorous finished man cave We're going to get to that. Okay. Right. Probably more like our basement. Now. Yes. No, it's not like our basement. It's worse? At all. Oy. We're going to get to that in just a moment. Okay. All right. So she's telling the story. Police are thinking this is completely unbelievable. So they go to Yosef and they say, okay, she's saying all of this. What's going on here? And he completely confesses to everything. Wow. Totally confesses to every detail of what happened in that basement. I wasn't expecting that either. Right? (laughs) He explains a meticulous plan that he began devising in 1978. Mm -hmm. You see, he actually had been molesting Elizabeth since she was 11 years old. This plan he devised included building a bomb shelter at his home. Okay. 
Okay, now this might seem like it should be weird and should turn people's heads a little bit, but you got to remember the Cold War just ended. Yes. So people are still a little... Yeah. So it's not weird at this point in time. Right. So Yosef was actually an engineer. So he was able to build basically a fortress under his house without anyone being the wiser. He installed a security lock on the original basement door. He then built a little house complete with a bedroom and a bathroom. Over the years, he added a kitchen and a second bedroom. It was accessed only by one hidden doorway with a code that only Yosef could open. Mm. He even quit his job as an engineer and went into real estate so that he could make his own schedule and nobody would be any the wiser. (laughs) They actually said that sometimes he would go like on business trips and nobody knew where he was, but he was down in the basement. Mm. So the audience didn't see you make air quotes there. Sorry, air quotes, business trips. Yes. Yes. Right. All right. Well, it had taken him six years to finish this bunker. And all he had to do was get Elizabeth to go down there. Mm. On Wednesday, August 28th, his wife left town and he decides this is the day. This is like that. uh, I'm going to do it. Book and movie, The Lovely Bones. Kind of. He made that. Oh, yeah. He made that like little bunker. Mm -hmm. All he had to do was get her to go down and then it was game on. Yeah, that freaks me out because he always says, he tells her to be polite. Yes. And I I always tell Isabel now, if you feel weird, don't be polite. Yes, exactly. <laughs> be uh, rude and get the heck out of there. Nowadays, you don't have to worry about that. Everybody's an asshole. Yeah. So there is anyway. no be polite. He asks his daughter for help with a door in the basement and gets her to come down. Yeah. Where he chloroforms her. He then drags her body through a series of electronic doors, rapes her, and then handcuffs her to a pole next to a bed that he had prepared. She's chained so tightly to the post that for the first couple of days, she can't even reach the toilet. When she wakes up, she's still handcuffed and in a dimly lit room. Yosef had left her to tell police that she was missing. Hmm. Tearfully and clearly devastated, he told them that he did not think she had run away. He thought that she had been abducted by a cult. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So you asked the question of why aren't they asking questions? Yes. Right? Yeah. Wow. He had a very violent temper. And he basically told them, nobody's about allowed to go near the basement. And if you do, I will kill you. Yeah. So they were scared. He seems a little nuts. Yeah. So not wanting to incur his wrath, they all complied. Mm-hmm. Yosef made sure that all trash was disposed of miles away and that he shopped in a store that was on the other side of town so that nobody would know him. So he had everything like thought out. Premeditated. Mm -hmm. So the kicker, ready for this. Yes. Is that the family rented their rooms out to more than 100 tenants (laughs) in the 24 years that Elizabeth was held captive. Wow. Some of them said they noticed strange things like odd foods missing from their pantries. One said his electricity bill had been really expensive one month. So he decided to go investigate and he almost discovered the bunker Mm. at that point. Yeah. Another said that his dog would always kind of bark and sniff around the entrance where Yosef would bring the food down to them. Mm -hmm. And they all said that obviously they should have investigated more. Yeah. But none of them knew or did anything at that time. So in March of 2009, Yosef was sentenced to life in prison. Elizabeth and her three children, the ones that were in the basement with her, yes, all assumed new identities and were moved to an undisclosed location. I mean, I would want to be a completely different person, wouldn't you? Yeah. 
Two of the children, so Kirsten is one of them, require medical attention because of their disabilities. And they also have immunity issues from being raised without sunlight. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. The upstairs family, as we'll call them. (laughs) Yes. Have taken on new identities also. And that's my story. So they weren't uh, accomplices in any way. The the mother says she was not. Hmm. She didn't have any idea of what was going on. So. Wow, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. So the reason that my interest was piqued yeah. was I saw a trailer for a movie called The Girl in the Basement. Yes. And a bunch of people were commenting, oh, mm-hmm. this is that story. And I'm like, what story? So I looked it up. I'm like, how did I not know about this? This was just recently. It wasn't that long ago. 2008, when she surfaces. It wasn't that long ago. Where was I? Yeah. So I, I have some thoughts on that. And actually, I will. It's part of my story. So oh, right on. Yeah. Good transition. Yeah, it is a good transition. That's a good one, babe. I like that. Thanks. Well done. Thank you. So you and the audience know that I'm a big fan of trying to stick to the theme, which we mentioned in the intro of how did we miss that, right? Right. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of things we've missed because we're not all that old. So there's things in the past that we've missed. I mean, I'm old, but I'm not old, old. So there's things that obviously we would miss. But with that said, I I feel like you and I are both um, studiers, I guess. Yeah. Like we are interested in things. We pay attention we research, we care about the world around us. So when a news flash comes up, we read, we're curious. That's the word I mean. That's the word. Yes. But yet we still miss a lot of stuff out there. Mm-hmm. Because like you said, people knew about this story and you had no clue. Yeah. This is a, the story I'm going to do is apparently common knowledge and I had no clue. Did you know before I mentioned it to you? I had heard the name before, but I didn't know what it was associated with. I hadn't even heard the name. I mean, maybe I did, but this whole story I hadn't heard anything about, which I think is just crazy to me because this was, you know, granted I wasn't born yet, but the case just was, well, I'll, I'll tell that later, but the case was just made inactive in 2016. Oh. That's like at the my peak of paying attention to right. crime and security type stuff. I feel yeah. like I should have known about this. Interesting. Anyway. I think I've said it about a thousand times over the past 40 episodes. I kind of just said it right now, but I'm in the security field, so I pay particular attention to incidents of terrorism and certain crimes, trends, all that stuff, blah, blah, blah. And I like to study the history of them because it helps me with my job to understand those trends and whatever. Um, So you can imagine my surprise when I stumbled upon this story flying home from our vacation. (laughs) So I'm going to tell you a story about an airplane. That I found out while I was on an airplane. Oh, dear. Weird, right? Yeah. This is the uh, very, to me anyway, interesting story and cold case slash conspiracy theory of D.B. Cooper. His real name was Dan. Dan. Yeah. Sounds like a business guy. Hey, Um, Dan. Well, actually, I'm sorry. That's the name that he called himself. Whether Mm -hmm. that's his real name or not, nobody knows. Um, But before I get into his story and that whole part of it, I'm going to talk a little bit of history about airplane hijackings because that's what I do. I cover some history. All right. That's my jam, right? Let's do it. So by definition, okay, an airline hijacking, and it's got a bunch of other names, but we'll stick to this one. Things like airline piracy and aircraft, blah, 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 is the unlawful seizure of an aircraft by an individual or group. That's it. Okay. Simple enough, right? Well, yeah. I mean, that's what I would describe it as. Well, and come to think of it, and I'm not being dirty here. It's going to sound dirty, but I'm not. You can pretty much add jack or jacking to any word, and you get the same concept. Carjacking, computer jacking, you know, 
Okay. Hand jacking. Uh, yes, you're, you're seizing. <laughs> Never mind. Anyway. Okay, moving see, on. I told you I wasn't trying to be dirty. You just hijacked our story. Oh, wow. See, you just like, see what I'm saying? Like it. That's what I'm that saying. That was good. That was good. Unlike other forms of jacking, though, aircraft hijacking specifically is usually not committed for robbery or theft like, say, a carjacking. Right. The sole purpose of a carjacking is to steal the car to either get away or just steal the car. Right. Like we've seen in way too many movies, aircraft hijackings are generally done by a group for some type of ransom or a political or administrative like concession by authorities. You know, like, oh, I want my uncle out of prison and I'm going to hijack Air Force yeah. One, you know. Mm-hmm. And then there's the very true and very real scenario that we've all seen in Con Air, where there was a group of prisoners trying to escape and they used the airplane as their method to do so. So there's that kind of hijacking as well in that very real depiction of a story, right? Right. Okay. On a more serious note, probably the most famous hijacking of recent memory, at least for people of our generation and really of all time now, is um, the rare scenario where the hijackers will use the planes as a suicide yes. missile, such as 9-11. Don't really need to say much more about that. Everyone knows about that. All right. Definitely didn't miss that. No, didn't miss that. <laughs> Can't miss that. No. So now some deeper history. Between 1929 and 1957, there were fewer than 20 incidents of reported hijackings worldwide. I'm sorry, fewer? That sounds like a lot. Oh, it gets better. Oh, God. Considering that the first flight by the Wright brothers was in 1903, this statistic actually makes sense to me. Because, you know, commercial and passenger air travel was nowhere near as prominent as it is today. Even in the 50s, okay? Right. So to me, that number sounds... About right. You're saying it seems shockingly high. (laughs) 20 times an airplane was taken over? Well, remember this very simple definition. Right. Don't think of a crowded crowded airliner. In fact, I'm going to give you an example. Okay, so it's not always commercial flights. Okay, all right. right. So while there was one unconfirmed hijacking in 1929 itself, the first recorded official incident occurred on February 21st, 1931 in Peru. A man by the name of Byron Richards was flying a Ford Trimotor, it's a plane, I guess, and was approached on the ground by armed revolutionaries. He refused to fly them anywhere during a 10-day standoff. Richards was informed that the revolution was successful and he could be freed to return for, to flying um, one of the men to Lima. So that's technically a hijacking, even though it's like not your traditional okay. hijacking. There's a few others that took place during this time period, but these two I found particularly interesting, so so I'm going to share them. On October 28th, 1939, again, this is going to be another example of not your traditional hijacking, but it fits the definition. The first murder on a plane took place in Brookfield, Missouri. This is sort of a murder podcast, so I figured I'd share this one. The victim was someone named Carl Bivens, who was a flight instructor. He was teaching a man named Ernest P. Pletch who went by the name of Larry. (laughs) That makes sense. While airborne, Pletch shot Bivens twice in the back of the head. Pletch later told prosecutors, Carl was telling me that I had a natural ability and I should follow that line. He then added, I had a revolver in my pocket and without saying a word to him, I took it out of my overalls and fired a bullet into the back of his head. He never knew what struck him. (laughs) (laughs) So technically a hijacking, but not really in the traditional sense. Right. The Chicago Daily Tribune called this one of the most spectacular crimes of the 20th century. Pletch pleaded guilty and was sentenced to life in prison. However, he was released 
March 1st, 1957, after serving 17 years, and he lived until 2001. How did I miss that? I don't know. Didn't, I didn't hear anything about that. No. Um, so, like I said, murder's kind of our jam. I wanted to share that one, even though it's not your traditional hijacking, Got but it. it is by definition. And the second one, this is the first hijacking of a flight for political reasons, and okay. it happened in Bolivia, and it affected the airline Lloyd Aero Boliviano, and it happened on September 26, 1956. A DC-4 aircraft was carrying 47 prisoners. Con Air, hello. Oh, put the bunny in the box. <laughs> nice. Thanks. Who were being transported from Santa Cruz, Bolivia to El Alto in La Paz. A political group was waiting to take them to a concentration camp located in Carajuara de... Ooh, say that five times Carangas, Oruro. Ooh. <laughs> you okay over there? And we're done. <laughs> <laughs> The 47 prisoners overpowered the crew and gained control of the aircraft while airborne and delivered the plane to Tartagal, Argentina. Prisoners took control of the aircraft and received instructions to fly to Salta, Argentina, as the airfield in Tartagal was not big enough. You know what? This is Con Air. Absolutely. Those efforts stole this. Mm -hmm. Unbelievable. So anyway, upon landing, they told the government of the injustice they were subjected to and received political asylum. Hmm. Not the same ending as Conair. No. No Nicolas Cage, but close enough. Not huge blow-ups. And wasn't it John Cusack? Was he in that? He was, yeah. John Cusack. He was like the, the ATF agent or whatever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's believable. Exactly, right? Yes. <laughs> the very fit, very svelte. John Cusack. John Cusack. <laughs> so before we move on from this time period, and this is something of note, was the first commercial hijacking. It occurred in 1948 aboard a... Cathay Pacific flight. Mm -hmm. That's a Chinese right, um, yes. airline. The flight was hijacked for ransom and ultimately crashed, killing all but one person who admitted to being part of a gang of pirates. Oh, who attempted did he have an eye patch? The high <laughs> I don't think Asian pirates wear eye patches, but who knows? Did he at least have a peg leg? <laughs> <laughs> Different kind of pirate. You know, all right. When I was doing my research, they went know, into the whole it. definition of piracy, which I, which I don't want to bore you with. But right. I got it. It's not just. I'm just being silly. Peg legs and hooks. Okay. I oh, I didn't even mention a hook. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, anyway, maybe a pig. He was part of a gang of pirates who attempted the hijacking. The aircraft crashed after the pilot was shot while attempting to resist the attackers. Mm-hmm. That's after, not smart. Well, after this incident, a few other and a few others in the fifties, airlines recommended that flight crews just comply with the hijackers' demands rather than risk confrontation. Oh, well, that makes it easy. And that practice was pretty much in place until nine eleven. You know, and now whether or not it's official policy or not, it seems that passengers and flight attendants take shit into their own hands nowadays. I mean, I hear about it all yeah. the time. Somebody was unruly and they so, were tackled and tased and everything else. Did you happen to see in your research when the Locked doors were installed. Yes, that's in the at the cockpit? end. That's at okay. the end. Well, no, the locked doors. Locked doors didn't happen until after nine eleven. Okay, that's what I was wondering. Was yes. it before because of no. all of this stuff going on? I'll or? cover another p part of that at the end, though. Because I, okay, I seem to remember in one of the stories that somebody knocked on the door saying it was one of the, the flight attendants, and then they opened it for nine eleven. Yeah, they am I, they just charged the cockpit am and I got glue? in. Okay. No, they. I thought I, mean, I remember. Well, that they had one of the they had one of the flight attendants like held at box cutter. Point. Oh, maybe that's what I'm and thinking yeah. of. Okay. Yeah. All right. I'm going to breeze through the rest of the history lesson so we can get to the point because I said this was about douchebag Cooper and I haven't right mentioned him at all except for right now. So from 1958 to 1967, 
there were approximately 40 documented hijackings. Holy cow. Worldwide. So the number's going up. But get this. Are you ready for this? Mm -hmm. I told you it gets better. In just a five-year period between 1968 and 1972, the world experienced, any guesses? I, I don't even want to. 300. Try. 300. 26 hijack attempts. Oh. What? Wait, wait, wait. The attempts? F. That's including attempts? Yes. Okay. What the F? How did we miss that? I had no idea hijacking attempts were anywhere near that number. So I feel in like all of history. every time there's a car chase, we know about it. Yes. How come we don't have little helicopters flying along the side of the plane? Well, I think we would waiting now, for the guy to like throw out his drugs. In fairness, or there he's hasn't been an, a, a hijacking attempt, at least that I know of, since 9 11. Okay. So things have tightened up. And in fairness to us, this was between 68 and 72. We weren't born yet, and they didn't have televised car chases. Truth. So, I mean, I don't know. That's part of it. But I didn't even know there were that many in history, let alone a five-year period. Yeah. Insane. Crazy. Well, it turns out the attempts um, were either for transportation elsewhere or some type of extortion. So I don't think they were as serious as we're mm. making them sound. In fact... Even television shows started making parodies of them, and it wasn't taken very seriously because it was like oh, some goofball okay. saying, take me to, you know, Barbados instead of here or wherever. And that that's, by definition, an attempted hijacking, even right. though it's not scary stuff like 9-11, right? So let's skip over some years and go straight to 1980. So many great things came out of the 80s, including you. Yeah. The best thing that come out of the 80s. Mm, thanks. So from 1980 to 2000, thanks to airport screening enhancements and cooperation in security kind of dealings around the world, the attempts drastically dropped below that ludicrous number I just told you. I don't know the exact number, but they dropped a lot. The 80s brought a new threat, however, of organized terrorism, where the terrorists were um, kind of into just destroying the aircraft to draw attention, okay. like terrorists do. So no ransom, no uh, political asylum. We're just going to blow up this aircraft to hurt people and like you do. call attention. There were famous incidents, which I'm sure we you didn't miss. Pan Am Flight 103 in mm -hmm. 1988 that was bombed over Scotland and an Air India flight that was bombed over the Irish coast. Okay. The 90s were pretty quiet when it comes to hijackings, not in general. It was very loud. With it was very loud. Grunge and everything else. Um, and it was that, that takes us pretty much right up to 9-11. So the right. 90s and all the way up to 2000 were... Pretty much nothing when it comes to hijackings. Okay. Thanks for bearing with me through all that history. That I, think. Was a I lot. thought it was important. That was long. I wanted to deliberately spend some time on the history to show you how prominent and sometimes not prominent hijackings are or were and why we may have missed D.B. Cooper's story. Okay. His story kind of falls right in that sweet spot of when they were making parodies mm. of these because they happen so often. Okay? okay. All right. Let's get into this thing. D.B. Cooper is a media name given to a man named Dan Cooper, who no one really knew in 1971 when he hijacked a Boeing 727 over in U.S. airspace during a flight between Portland, Oregon, and Seattle, Washington. So it's for, a really short flight. I was just going to say, for our international friends that have never been here or don't know, that's a, like a super short flight, like maybe 30 minutes. I was going to say like 30, 45 minutes yeah, probably. nothing. So on the afternoon of November 27th, a basic-looking, fairly nondescript man, is what the research says, who called himself Dan, approached the ticket counter of Northwest Orient Airlines in Portland. He used cash to buy a one-way ticket on flight 305 bound for Seattle. Now today, that would be a huge red flag. I'm talking like right. 
Homeland Security like dropping in from the rooftop with guns drawn, red flag, because that's what terrorists do. Cash and one-way tickets. Right. Cooper was said to be a quiet man who appeared to be in his mid-40s. He wore a business suit with black tie and a white shirt. Seems very out of place nowadays on a flight where people wear flip-flops and Oh, no. They dressed up back then. Right. In the 70s, people got dressed up. So nothing too strange or to be alarmed about here. And another thing that definitely can't happen today, when he sat down in his seat, he ordered a bourbon and soda while waiting for the plane to take off. Nice. We have to wait till like 10,000 feet to get our soda and peanuts. Or peanuts. We don't even get peanuts anymore. We don't even anymore. get peanuts anymore. You got to buy them. So first of all, I like this guy's style with the bourbon and soda and mm-hmm. the suit. I think we should bring that back. And second, what the fuck? You can drink before the plane leaves? That's uh, You can't it's, even do that in first class. I don't know why we can't bring that back. Amazing, right? What a it time to be alive. Might make the takeoff a lot better for me. So to me, anyway, at this point, Dan seems like a cool traveler, maybe a businessman. He had a briefcase. Or maybe not. Must be a businessman with a briefcase. Duh. Exactly. Well, shortly after 3 p.m., things start to get weird. Cooper hands the stewardess. Again, that's adding some date to this story because now they're flight attendants. Can't say stewardess. That's a no-no. Well, they're not all stewardesses now. I understand that. Even if they're female, they may not identify as a stewardess. So we got to call them flight flight attendant. attendant. I'm going to say another word that's a bygone word of the airline industry later. Okay. Okay. He handed her a note saying that he has a bomb in his briefcase and he wanted her to sit with him. Oh, that's nice. The note stunned her a little bit, you know, like it would. But she did what she was told and she sat down. When she took her seat, Cooper opened his cheap looking briefcase and gave the stewardess a little glimpse of a mass of wires and red red colored sticks that were inside. So, Red colored, like TNT, yeah, think like of, from... Think of your typical cartoon I know, I was like from Roadrunner and Coyote. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> he then asked her to write down what he told her. A few min- minutes later, after writing it down, she took the note to the captain. You're probably wondering what the note said, right? Well, yeah. Well, I don't know. Oh. Sorry. No, I, I'm just kidding. Of course I know, oh. because I'm a thorough podcaster. I was say, and, that's really and I did strange. <laughs> the note demanded $200,000 in $20 bills. Okay. Not a huge amount of money nowadays. I mean, it is, but not really. But that was quite a sum in 71. And a bizarre request, if you ask me, he asked for four parachutes in addition to the $200,000. Four parachutes? Yeah, I mean, one parachute I get, but four? I'm not sure why. What's going on over there? I'm going to find out how much $20,000 from 1971 was. Yeah, that was written down somewhere, but I didn't grab it. So in receipt of the note, the captain continued the course and landed in Seattle. Once there, Cooper exchanged the flight's 36 passengers for the money and the parachutes. Apparently, we absolutely negotiated with bad guys back then, because I'm not sure how that would go now. But they feared he actually had a bomb, and so they gave him his money and parachutes. After receiving his demands, Cooper and several crew members took off again, this time with a course set for Mexico City, which was ordered by Cooper. What do you got? Oh, okay. $20,000 $20,000 now yes. is equivalent to $134,000. No, $200,000. I said two. Oh, did I say you said, 20? You said oh, 20. Sorry. Did you do it wrong? I did. Yeah, what's $200,000 now? Okay, here we go. It is equivalent to, you ready for this? Yes. $1,341,708.64. Okay, so $1.3 and change. So that's a, that's mm-hmm. a lot of money back then. 
200,000 would have hit you hard. quite a lot of money. So, so far, this seems like your typical run-of-the-mill hijacking, aside from the weird parachute part and like, yeah, hey, we're going to land here, give me my money, now fly me to Mexico and I'll disappear, right? Mm-hmm. Well, somewhere between Seattle and Reno and a little bit after 8 p.m., Cooper does the unthinkable and damn near impossible for a regular person. This okay. is my turn to use the air quotes. More on what I mean by a regular person in a minute. He jumps out of the back of the plane with one of the parachutes and the money. So mm-hmm. he's able to open up the air stairs from the back and just jumps out. The pilots and crew that were left behind landed safely despite the the uh, fuselage being opened, right? Which creates the air issue, all that stuff. Right. Um, but Cooper had disappeared into the night and his fate remains a mystery to this day. They couldn't even find a parachute? We'll get into that. Oh, okay. So that's the cold case part of this is they never found him. No trace, no dead body. No real evidence. Insane. Nothing. He literally disappeared from existence that night. Well, I kind of take that back. There was some evidence. Cooper was wearing a cheap clip-on tie from JCPenney. Come on, dude. I had respect for you a couple minutes ago. He didn't ago, have the 200000 yet. But he he's wearing buy a, a nice tie. clip-on tie. Only yeah. security guards and kids wear clip-on ties. I mean, what are we doing here? Mm-hmm. Well, before jumping that night, he removed it and left it on the plane. Authorities were able to retrieve it and later from uh, and later got a DNA sample. But as we know from that time period, DNA samples didn't really do much. Yeah. Well, the FBI opened an extensive investigation like they do for things like this, and it lasted many years. It was given code name Norjack or Northwest Hijacking. Very mm. original. I like it. It's got a really nice ring to it. Yes. During their investigation, the FBI interviewed hundreds of people, tracked leads across the country, and scoured the aircraft for evidence and came up with very little besides the aforementioned tie. Here's a stat for you. Are you ready? Yes. By the five-year anniversary of the incident, the FBI had considered more than 800 potential suspects, but eliminated all but 24 of them. Mm. One person on their short list was a man by the name of Richard Floyd McCoy. Sounds like a cool name. Mm-hmm. Dick McCoy here. Yeah. Who is still a favorite suspect among among many people who follow and know this story. They tracked down and arrested McCoy for a similar airplane hijacking and escape by parachute less than five months after Cooper's flight. Oh. So I said that was kind of weird. So someone else doing the same thing, that would be a likely suspect in my eyes. Well, but was it publicized? Was it in the news? I mean, you're asking the wrong guy. I missed all of this. Right. I'm sure it was, but. Because, I mean, it could just be a copycat who's like, this guy got away with it. I probably can too. Yeah, it's true. Well, McCoy was later ruled out because he didn't match the nearly identical physical descriptions of Cooper provided by two flight attendants that night and for other reasons. I forgot to mention that my sources are actually the FBI.gov and they're the ones that just said for other reasons. So I don't know what those other reasons are. Very cryptic. Um, History Channel, which is what I watched on the plane. And of course, Wikipedia. Of course. What would we do without them? With a waning list of leads and ideas, the FBI turned their thoughts to perhaps Cooper not surviving the jump from the plane. Because, I, mm. you know, unless you're a skilled skydiver, who could do that? The parachute he used couldn't be steered, and his clothing and footwear were not made for a rough landing. These factors could have made for a difficult jump for even a professional jumper, skydiver. I don't know what you call them. This theory was given an added boost. This is going to be... You're gonna be. You're gonna like this. Okay. And, and there's some good pictures to post for this. Ooh, yay! When a young boy in 1980 found a rotting package of twenty dollar bills, fifty eight hundred dollars in total, 
that matched the ransom money serial numbers. Oh, okay. Promising evidence, but that was it. Still no body, still no clothes. Did the little boy get to keep the money? And it was rotting, so it's no good. Mm. Nothing but down. some of this money, right? That's all they found. So at the site of the money, they found nothing else. And it wasn't all of the money. Had they found all of the money, then I guess you could say plausibly that he died. Yeah, he didn't make it. And maybe the other evidence washed away or whatever. But just part of the money and nothing else. Crazy. I don't get it. Strange. The FBI eventually gave up and removed all their resources from the case in 2016. I guess it still remains open, but nobody's really looking at it. Over the 45-year span of their active investigation, the FBI periodically made public some of their hypotheses and tentative conclusions that they drew from witness testimony and other things, scarce physical evidence and all that stuff. But ultimately, they just had to let this one go. Like, they can't. Yeah. Why, the guy's a mystery. He hasn't done any. There hasn't been any more similar crimes. He just kind of vanished. Mm-hmm. So that's my story in a nutshell, but I do have a few more nuggets that speak to the conspiracy part of this that I promised in the beginning. Okay. This part is what I learned while flying on the airplane and watching History Channel. I still think that's so cool and coincidental that I found my story about a plane on a plane. Yeah. I, I don't it's know. Very, I'm a dork. Very nice. One of the best theories out there amongst many is that Cooper was a CIA operative mm. with specific training on jumping from planes and parachute maneuvering. He was an Air Force vet, apparently, who was carrying out a mission to influence airport and airline security changes that had previously been resisted, hence the 326 attempted hijackings. It seems crazy, but as we've discussed on previous episodes, the CIA is a little crazy. Right. Pretty sure that's what the C stands for in their name. I could totally see them doing this. Yeah, that makes a little bit of sense. This theory has even more credibility to me, because in my research, I found that this specific incident did indeed initiate major changes in flight security. This sole incident is responsible for several things, of course, with some minor tweaks along the way that pretty much stood up until 9 11. Mm-hmm. Changes to airport security, like, you know, x rays, metal detectors, all that stuff, because of this. Mm hmm. And one specific change to aircraft that was later dubbed the Cooper Vane, so it was named after him, were made which prevented someone from lowering the rear air stair during a flight. Also, I told you I'd tell you about this, as a direct result of this hijacking, peepholes were placed in all cockpit doors. That's the word I'm not allowed to say anymore. Cockpit, bad. Flight deck, because it's very masculine. Oh. And there's female pilots, babe, come on. So it's called the flight deck. I'm sorry. Not the cockpit pit i got it okay anyway they put peepholes in the doors and those were mandated across all airlines so that the pilots could observe the passenger area without having to open the door right now as we know after 9-11 they lock the doors yes now when like a pilot has to use the restroom or whatever i've seen this happen stewardess or sorry flight attendant will knock on the door pilot verifies that it's her or him opens the door they replace each other lock the door again he goes potty, switch out again. Um, because the door has to remain does, locked at all times. How does the stewardess know he has to go potty? I, I think they have like a... Oh, like He raises his the- hand. I don't know. <laughs> they have like a calm link or something. Can I go potty? Yeah. Maybe when that is... You know how when you're flying, sometimes there's a random bing boom. Maybe that's it. Oh, he like pushes the... Yeah, I don't know. The button, maybe. <laughs> maybe, yeah. The P button. <laughs> I have no idea. They, it, they probably just have like radio. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. 
So those are pretty significant changes that came as a result of this one incident. So that's why I think the CIA theory might have a little weight to it. So one more thing. What's with the DB? The guy's name was Dan. Okay. Never said his name was DB. Well, apparently it was a mistake made by the media and it just kind of stuck around. Oh, okay. Thanks, media. Fake news was even a thing back then. Hey, yeah, look at that. All right, one final thing and then I'll shut up. Oh, okay. I can't speak uh, much about this because I haven't watched the show, but apparently in an episode of Disney Plus's Loki, Mm -hmm. Loki appears as D.B. Cooper. The show plays around with time and such. Yes. I I don't know. That's a very non-geek quick quick synopsis of this show. Um, And he supposedly is D.B. during that period of time in Loki's life. That's who he was. He assumed that Mm. identity. I guess I need to watch the show now because it sounds interesting. Right. And a couple people posted uh, his side by side with like a side yeah. by side drawing. Of the drawing. Yeah, yeah. I saw that. It was kind of cool. It was cool. <laughs> so with that said, it just goes to show how much I really have missed, like I mentioned in the beginning. Right. Despite knowing an awful lot, at least in my opinion, about a lot of things. I mean, even the low-key writers knew about this and I didn't know. Right. That's my story. Insane. Insane. Still open case if anybody has information on db cooper you sound like robert stack please let us know it how did we miss that (laughs) instagram and facebook yes all right all right and that's where you can go oh did you stop it no i muted myself so you can take us out baby sorry that's where you can go if you want any more information on these cases or pictures we will be posting um until next week keep your head up and look out for each other 